Hey everybody, Devin Boger here. Um, this is a wildlife, as I'm sure you know, because you hit play, so you you already know that. Um, I I'm feeling a little rusty, feeling a little rusty because I haven't recorded really uh, in a couple weeks. Um, I I wanted to say something right out right at the top, and that is uh. Well, okay. Um, so Richard has been on vacation for about, well, he's been out of town for, uh, almost a month now. And so our recording routine is a little bit out of it. Um, and, and I, myself, um, for those of you who have listened for a while, I'm sure that you know this at this point, I'm a high school science teacher. And, uh, as you can imagine being that it is 2020 in the era of COVID, Um, things have been taxing. Um, it's, it's been difficult to, to, uh, to, to adjust, um, and, and to, to the new demands of, of teaching and life and, uh, all of that stuff. And so, um, I'm here with this episode because it was it was on the calendar and I, and I really wanted to get this one out because it's something that uh, I, th- I think that you're going to like. I think that you're going to be really interested and I'm really excited about the person that we have. Um, but uh, I need I need a break. Um, I, I just need for the sake of my mental health and uh, the other things that I have on my constantly overflowing plate. Um, I, I need to take, I need to take like a week, maybe two weeks. Um, so with that being said, um, you'll probably hear it. I'm, I'm not enjoying saying this and, and I'm, I'm pulling on my phone to look at my calendar here, but, um, I'd like to have a new episode out by October 16th. That's my hope. And that's going to be my goal. Uh, between now and then I do plan on re-releasing some older episodes and doing some bonus things that are, you know, shorter. Um, but, but in terms of, of giving it time and allowing things to breathe and making sure that I can, I can give things the attention and the quality that they deserve and, and not feel rushed and, uh, panicked and then putting things out that you don't deserve. Uh, I, I, I'm going to aim for the 16th. But if I need, I, I don't know, it's possible. I might need a little bit more time. But uh, that's that's not that's not that bad. Um, that's, what, two weeks from now. Two weeks from now. So um, just a short break. It's not a really long one. But uh, I'll keep you posted. I'll let you know what's up. And, um, yeah, yeah, we've got a lot of really exciting stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm actually thinking that November is going to be, like, Australia month, which is weird because it's November, but, like, Hey, everything is upside down, right? So it works out. But we have a we have a few different things: wombats with their poop, and quokas and platypus and bandicoots. So it, it ought to be pretty cool. Anyway, to get to this episode, two days ago, I posted a behind the scenes getting to know you type of episode with today's guest in hopes that you would give it a listen before this one. So if you haven't probably should. Otherwise you're going to get to the end of this one and be like, oh man, now I need to go back and 
do what he said and like listen to that other one because he said it. But now I have this odd sense of defiance because he told me to. And now I like feel like I, I shouldn't because I don't want him to be right. But okay, here's the thing. I won't know. And no one listens to Devin anyway. I just said it in the third person. So I'm assuming already that you're diving right into this one. Okay, to jump into things. Today, we are talking to Kristen Minkowski. She's a naturalist, educator, volunteer, college student, and a frequenter of parks, museums, zoos, aquariums, nature centers, and wildlife refuges. She has spent the last five years addressing myths and misconceptions surrounding wildlife and conservation, where she nags about these issues and offers alternatives and solutions. A few years ago, she started The Nagging Naturalist as a way to share her adventures and to continue to address issues surrounding wildlife conservation. At the end of 2019, she decided she wanted to invest more in her naturalist content by creating a website and a podcast, which by the way, on the 30th and on uh, September 30th and October 2nd, she just put out an episode with one of our all-time favorite guests, Chelsea Connor, the herpetologist, the null queen, and so definitely go give those a listen. Her hope is to reach a broader audience to teach them about the value of wildlife conservation. As two naturalists, that was the reason we had to put out the first episode. We could not stay on topic, and we were midway through our recording session before we even started to talk about today's episode topic, so I decided to put that one out separately. She's currently studying for a Bachelor of Science at the University of Maryland. Her major is Environmental Science with a minor in Natural Science. She has currently, well, and, and, and previously, worked and volunteered as a wildlife conservation educator at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, National Aquarium, Maryland Zoo, and the Calvert Marine Museum for the past five years. She combines her education and years of experience in creating content to make information about wildlife and conservation more accessible. Okay, so today's topic is nudibranch, nudibranch, nudies, how, whatever you want to call it, a bit of etymology on those. Nudibranchs, as you probably noticed, definitely sound like nudie, which sounds like nude. Well, guess what? You're only partially immature because that is, in fact, what it means. Nudibranch means naked gill. The, the branch, the bronch part is like gill. You know, like branches and respiratory. It's a whole thing. Because these underwater mollusks have lost their shell, at least after their larval stage. They're basically a nudist cult of mollusk. Anyway, they're sea slugs. Whether you realize it or not, if you've ever spent any time on the internet, you've seen a sea slug. Those cute little bunny nuggets? Nudies. Those weird little blue and black dragons? Nudies. Those photosynthetic wavy dudes? Not nudies. Those are a different kind of sea slug. Some look like they're cosplaying at an anime convention. Some look like a marshmallow that's been left in the water. Some look like a tubular saltwater taffy that just hasn't been cut up into the little bite-sized pieces yet, and some look like dragon alien starfighters. They're insane. All I can really do is tell you to look up pictures while you listen because no description I provide will be enough. No matter what I say, you're going to look at a picture and you're going to go, that's nothing like what he said. This is, this is amazing. -er. You're going to look at them and you're going to wonder why there aren't more nudibranch-themed Pokemon. We talk swishy, dainty areas, droppable penises, well, just the tip, butt breathing, smelling things with horns, the tenacity of nudie niche filling, hard 
to say for some reason, overgeneralizations, taxonomy, blind dates, and how nudies came to kick ass and chew bubblegum, and they're all out of bubblegum. So hold on to your butts, wherever they may be, as we dive deep into the world of nudies with the nagging naturalist herself, Kristen Minkowski. But for the most part, I'm, I'm going to try to mostly keep it to the aeolids and dorids because that does encompass the vast majority of them. And there are at least 3,000 known species of nudibranchs um, with new ones being discovered all the time because they tend to be pretty tiny. And when I mean tiny, I mean like centimeters mm-hmm. <laughs> with only a few that reach uh, larger lengths. Like uh, for right now, the largest known species is the Spanish dancer which I believe can be somewhere around about a foot long. But the vast majority of species are going to be a few inches long, if not smaller. So pretty hard to discover. And they can be extremely cryptic in their camouflage, which, again, makes them very hard to discover. Yeah, It's kind of like pygmy seahorses, how literally for like years people were photographing sea fans and stuff and not realizing that there were pygmy seahorses on it until finally somebody noticed that, there's a part of the uh, the sea fans and coral that just didn't quite mesh right, and they realized they were looking at a completely different animal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Same thing with nudibranchs; like they can they can literally be sitting in plain sight, and people can go years without seeing them. So it's pretty incredible. Sure. Okay. Okay. Um, what is the uh, most abundant? I believe the aeolids tend to be one of the most abundant. Don't get me wrong, the majority of the pictures I see online tend to be dorids, but dorids very often have those uh, bright, colorful, uh, you know, patterns that are really attractive to people. And so a lot of people, so the vast majority of photographs that come out of them are often either one of two two places, either it's the Indo-Pacific around coral reefs, Mm -hmm. or it's along the uh, west coast of North America in kelp forests. Those are two places where we see a lot of pictures coming out because those are two areas that have uh, diversity hotspots, essentially, where we see high amounts of uh, speciation Mm -hmm. in those areas. However, they're found all over the place. So it's it's a little tricky because again, we're still finding so many different kinds all over. And I do think that it can be tricky saying which one's more or less because, you know, no matter what I say in 10 years, I might be wrong basically. (laughs) Um, And especially because their prey is so abundant too, it matters what they eat. So, you know, animals can only fill a niche if they have the resources to survive. And the things that a lot of these species, the dorids and aeolids, what they eat Mm -hmm. are some of the most abundant animals we have in the ocean. (laughs) So they are going to be in great abundance if they have an appropriate niche to fill. And they have really great adaptations for protecting themselves. And it just leads to this incredible diversity of animals. But in general, uh, I think most people are going to see dorids in media Mm-hmm. Like the cute little one that looks like the fluffy sheep and everything, like that's a Dorid. Um, but I do think that when I look through lists and look at different types, most often I see a huge abundance in the Aeolid nudibranchs. And in all honesty, it's not surprising because they have some of the wildest adaptations 
and <laughs> the things that they can do that they've adapted to do is so incredible. It makes sense that they're so diverse because they, they literally, whenever life throws an obstacle at them, their reaction isn't, well, I'm just not going to fill this niche like it is with some animals. It's, you know what? Hold my drink. <laughs> <laughs> and they adapt to just some really amazing obstacles, especially in the ocean. Anybody who knows anything about the ocean knows it is such a difficult place to live in. It's yeah, full of so many changes and so many dangers. Nudibranchs are, especially Aeola nudibranchs, are really fearless adapters. <laughs> and uh, they filled some niches that I think some people, as they've gone viral, found them to be. I, I'm pretty sure when the... Um, what is it? The the Glaucus, the the yeah. blue dragon nudibranch that everybody's obsessed with. Like when that went viral, a lot of people said it was fake. I saw so many posts yeah. where people were like, "That's not real." It, it doesn't look real. It looks like I I actually have a picture of one in my notes here. It, it does not look real. I mean, it looks like something out of like Pokemon. It, it really does, and not just that. When people look at their adaptations, they seem even less real to people. They're like, "This thing eats Portuguese man of war stingers." Like, that's not a thing. It's like, well, you know, it is. It is a thing. This is a this is a real animal. It's not something out of somebody's imagination. It's one of those things where truth is stranger than fiction. <laughs> so you mentioned the uh, the coral areas and the kelp forests. I mean, those are somewhat similar but also super different i mean what what kind of habitats and, and you know what kind of range are we talking in the oceans um pretty much any marine environment can be inhabited by a nudibranch as far as we know they are found uh, pretty much everywhere now like i said the coral reefs and kelp forests tend to be biodiversity hotspots for them but in all honesty they're biodiversity hotspots for anything whenever we look at coral reefs and kelp forests they always have high instances of biodiversity but we find nudibranchs in the arctic and antarctic we find them in the deepest depths of the ocean i mean uh ambari the monterey bay aquarium research institute mm -hmm. actually helped to discover i think four new nudibranch oh, species wow. during some of their deep sea dives uh like i said these are fearless adapters they see a challenge and they're like you know what hold my beverage. <laughs> um, I do not believe that we currently know of any freshwater species, but there are some species that can tolerate brackish conditions. So okay. they are slowly moving inland as far as I'm concerned. As long as they're allowed to keep evolving and adapting, I'm sure in a few million years we'll have uh, freshwater nudibranchs. Oh, that would be amazing. I mean, granted, we might not be around for that, but... <laughs> I certainly yes. hope not. I do not want to be here in a few million years. <laughs> So in terms of, I mean, you've mentioned the adaptations and, and yes, I mean, even just visually, I mean, you can tell that there is an extreme diversity in, in their survivability and the adaptations that they have and stuff. But I guess looking, you know, at a breakdown, starting with sensory, you know, what is sensory for a nudibranch? So for the most part, uh, their main sensory is actually something that's very visible. So when you look at a nudibranch's body, the front part of its body, and I say that with air quotes, <laughs> is going to be where their rhinophores are. The rhinophores look like a pair of horns projecting from their head. And the rhinophore is their primary form of sensory because it is essentially their olfactory, their sense of smell. And they use this chemical sensory to help find food mm -hmm. and arguably mates and also avoid predators. So what's really cool about it too is 
while we may look at them and think they're all just little horns, if you look closely between species, you'll notice not all rhinophores are created equally. So the rule of thumb among many nudibranchs is the more surface area you have, the more acutely you can absorb chemicals in the water and sense things essentially. So there's so many different types. There are some simple smooth types, but then you'll see some that have folds or protrusions coming out of them. There's mm-hmm. annulated, you know, rhinophores and all, I forget how many different types there's, there's at least half a different type, different types of rhinophores that they can have. And they're so important that some nudibranchs have even developed uh, essentially like sheaths Mm-hmm. and flaps of skin that come out to protect the rhinophores and those that don't have those sheaths some of them also have the ability to pull their rhinophores down and withdraw them under uh, pockets in their skin to protect them because that is oh, wow. their most valuable sensory organ i mean their eyes are not very good their yeah. eyes are basically light sensors they, are, they have very simple eyes and it's basically meant to just detect light and dark so they can't see anything uh, they just know when it's daytime and when it's nighttime or if they're under something that's shadowy, basically. <laughs> um, basically, the vast majority of their sensory comes from those rhinophores. So how about how about in terms of respiration? Respiration is really fascinating because it's it, this is one of those things that you and I were talking about earlier where like yeah. things are very generalized. Mm-hmm. So nudibranch means naked gill and it's meant to mean naked gill because people associate the serrata, which are hair-like projections from the back of an aeolid, and the uh, ruffles, I call them butt ruffles, on the dorids to be their gills. And don't get me wrong, they do help respirate, but they can respirate throughout their entire body. So they can breathe through their skin. But the serrata and the ruffles, the butt ruffles on the dorids, produce that additional surface area. And so they're able to take in additional oxygen because of that extra surface area. So it does somewhat operate like gills in a sense that it helps respirate for a lot of their body. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's not their main source. And that's especially important in aeolids because aeolids uh, have a really cool adaptation. Uh, some people will recognize it. Autotomy, which is the ability to drop body parts like lizards drop their tails, uh, <laughs> they can drop their serrata. So you don't want to rely on strictly your serrata for respiration if you can potentially lose all of it. <laughs> and so that's the that's the two different ways that they respirate. Uh, I know some people get uh, <laughs> really excited about the dorids because they're called butt breathers because basically their anus is in the middle of those butt ruffles. Mm-hmm. Um, but just so people know, remember the rhinophores are what smells it. So even though they're breathing through those gills, they're not smelling through those gills. So they're not pooping where they breathe essentially. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that, I mean, that's good. <laughs> yeah. That's an yeah. upside, I guess. <laughs> it is, it is, it, but it's, it's, it's really fascinating though, especially from the sense of the aeolids because, you know, there's only so much that the dorids could do with their little ruffles, but with the aeolids, uh, the serrata have so many different functions and depending on which aeolid we're talking about, they, yeah. they can serve one or more of certain functions. It all depends on the species. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's really fascinating. And like I said, when they drop them, they also put out this really gross, sticky secretion. It's, mm-hmm. it's crazy. It even wiggles too. So the Oof. serrata, when it's released, will wiggle for a period of time, just like a lizard's tail. 
until it basically runs out of juice. Oh, that's, see, that's awesome. That means that means nature has figured out that that works multiple times, both in land and sea. That's pretty exactly. cool. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, convergent, convergent evolution's a thing. Like people think all the time, like, oh, these animals are related because they do this, right? And it's like, no, this is just a very successful <laughs> adaptation. And yeah. nature's like, I love it so much, I'm going to put it in everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wings happen to be super nice to have. I, I wish I had wings sometimes. It's um, <laughs> just how it works. So you know, when I'm looking at some of these pictures and things, I mean, they, they're they so odd, <laughs> number one, <laughs> in terms of their body shape. I mean, there's just such an amazing array of appearance. One of the things I can't help but notice, though, is they don't really appear to have, like, I don't know, a mouth or, like, a th- something. I don't how, – how do they – like, what – okay, what do they eat? How do they eat with that body? <laughs> with that body. Yeah. <laughs> with the whole body. Um <laughs> so the mouth is on the underside of the body. They're not they're not truly cephalized, so they don't have a, a true head. There is no like, you know, neck, a place where things like segment and separate. Mm-hmm. Um so as with most gastropods, and that'll include of course snails, the mouth is typically on the underside. Uh, within their mouth, they have uh, this really cool thing called a radula. It is this rasping uh, tongue that is covered in ser- tooth-like serrations. And I actually love to watch radulas be used. If you've never seen it, uh, anytime you go to an aquarium or even like a pet store where they have snails in a tank and they're they're going up along the glass and they're licking up the algae, if you watch it, it almost looks like a zipper constantly zipping. Yeah like being unzipped, like that's their radula at work. And so it can be used in so many different ways. One of my favorite things is, you know, backtracking slightly to biomimicry. They're trying to look at applications for limpet teeth because limpet teeth are considered one of the strongest biomaterials in the world because these itty bitty tiny snails use just their teeth to anchor themselves to rocks against the crashing waves of the whole ocean. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And they, I believe they have some sort of special iron based structure in their radula in certain limpets that help them do that too. They, they just, and it's, and they know it's iron based because they can use magnets to pick up these teeth. (laughs) (laughs) So um, radulas are a really cool tool that we see used throughout the gastropods and it's no different in nudibranchs. They have that uh, rasping tongue. And so, you know, when they eat uh, every nudibranch has different diets. So if we're looking at Dorid nudibranchs, they can have a couple different things they eat, but probably the biggest thing that most species prey on are types of sponges. And they prey on these types of sponges because they can tolerate the toxins that the sponges have in their flesh, and they can actually recycle that for their own use. Mm. So uh, that's one of the reasons also why a lot of these species that we admire are so colorful. Part of it is, of course, the aposomatic warning that many Mm -hmm. species have where they're like, hey, I'm toxic, don't eat me. In some species, it is a bluff, but in many species, it's very true that they are very toxic. Mm -hmm. Um, And in some cases, the coloration also happens because of what they're eating. The food gives them the color. So uh, that's dorids, mostly sponge eaters that make themselves toxic and unpalatable because of sponges. Mm -hmm. In the aeolids, these are uh, slightly more active carnivore in many cases, they can eat a variety of things, including other nudibranchs, but they are most known for the ones that predate on cnidarians, and cnidarians mm. being 
uh, stinging animals like jellyfish, hydroids, coral, sea anemones, etc. And this, this comes back to people thinking that they're not real, and that's because they have a special adaptation that allows them to eat the stingers of jellies and other stinging animals. So in a lot of cases, these guys have a special mucus that uh -huh. protects them from the sting. So uh, when the nidocytes come into, so there's, there's two things that keep the nidocytes, the stingers from stinging. One is the jellyfish itself. The nidocyte recognizes the jellyfish and it does not sting it. That's why some jellyfish can run into each other and not hurt each other with stings mm. because it recognizes, it's like, oh, this is the same jellyfish. I don't sting this. Um, and the other thing is, of course, seawater. <laughs> yeah. um, if you actually took a jellyfish from salt water and put it into fresh water, you can actually activate all of its mature stingers because mm. that change in the water chemistry is something that would trigger it. So they have this mucus that protects them from those initial stings and they'll eat them. However, jellyfish stingers are constantly being used and dropped and growing new ones. So they will have immature stingers and mm -hmm. immature stingers have all their components. They're just not ready for use yet. Now, if, a, if an, an aeolid nudibranch eats these immature stingers, it can pass harmlessly through their bodies and when it gets to the serrata, so the serrata, even though it's used for respiration, is also has part of their digestive tract in it. There's digestive glands in the serrata. Okay. And the serrata have a duct that connects that digestive gland to sacs at the very tip of the serrata. Huh. They're called nidosacs, and they're specifically for storing nidocytes, which are the cnidarian stingers. Huh. So we see... We see that that nido getting used over and over again yeah, to tell yeah. you the relatedness of it. So, so the nido sacs can store it, and the stingers are allowed to mature in the nido sac. And so, are so just to back up a second. So, eating these, so they're eating. Are they eating immature ones that have fallen off, or how, like how are they? They're eating everything. They're pretty indiscriminate for the most part. They okay. will. They will, so they'll eat the tentacles and with the tentacles, they will be eating the stingers that have already gone off, but they can also eat the immature ones that are coming into that mm. space. So okay. um, for cnidarians, once a stinger is used, it will eventually fall off. And I think even if they're unused, they'll still eventually fall off. It's kind of like shark's teeth. Like sharks mm -hmm. will lose perfectly good teeth constantly just as that new good teeth are coming up in its in its uh, place. Mm -hmm. Same thing with jellies and other cnidarians is they're constantly developing new stingers. Okay. So when they consume them, they're consuming used and unused stingers and any stingers that aren't triggered yet because mm -hmm. they're not mature enough yet can get stored in these nido uh, sacks for later use. Okay. Now, aside from that, then, I mean, I mean, if like just based off appearance, I mean, I, I know coloration is, I mean, something that, you know, you want to talk about convergent evolution. I mean, coloration is something that almost everything i mean you can find an example of how coloration is being used as, as some kind of signal in some way and then um you know we are quite familiar with with the you know aposomatic type of you know warning please don't eat me because not only would that be bad for me but it'd also be pretty bad for you so let's just you know avoid the trouble altogether and you stay over there and i'll stay over here and you do your own thing and i'll do my own thing um they look super soft, super squish. They don't look like they have a whole lot of ability to protect themselves. I mean, is that is that um, toxic toxin? Uh, you know, their primary defense. 
So, yeah, so their first line of defense is absolutely chemical rather than physical, you know, and, and that's basically what happened when they dropped the shell because uh, evolution has proven in gastropods that the snails came first, the slugs came second, mm. which seems kind of counterintuitive. You would think that they would just... I know you think that, that the shells would develop first and that's not to say that the ancient ancestors of snails weren't more slug like but as far as um, it basically comes down to evolutionary um, development and it, it's, it, it's like in humans when you look at human development we have gills at some part of our embryonic stage <laughs> mm-hmm. and th- those gills are a reminder of our very ancient ancient aquatic past same thing with these snails uh these guys during their development do have shells they drop them before they mature and so you know they actually ditched that form of protection in favor of being able to maneuver better and to uh have these new adaptations that allowed them to protect themselves so in the case of uh, species like the dorids, that toxicity absolutely makes them very unpalatable. Like I said, some are a bluff. There are some species that have adapted the colorations of another. They mimic mm-hmm. toxic species, but aren't actually that toxic. That does happen in nudibranchs. Um, another thing, actually, that I should mention is uh, some of them develop olfactory defense, too, especially in the dorids and in some of the uh, triton nudibranchs. So uh, sea lemon dorids can put out a scent that smells like citrus fruit, Mm. which is one of the reasons why they're called sea lemons. One is a lot of them are yellow and bumpy like a lemon, but another is they can actually sometimes smell like a lemon. Oh. And if you think about living in the briny, salty ocean all your life, the smell of lemon might actually not be that appealing. It's, it's tart, it's acrid, it's, it's not going to be that appealing to a lot of animals in the ocean. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, if you go from eating, um, you know, pretzels and then try to eat some Sour Patch Kids, it's not the best transition in the world. It's it's kind of abrupt. <laughs> it really can be. And uh, in the Triton nudibranchs, one of my favorites is the Melibes, uh, in particular Melibe leonina, which is the uh, lion's mane nudibranch, which we see along our Pacific coast. Uh, it was one of the first nudibranchs I was introduced to. It produces a scent reminiscent of watermelon candy, like a watermelon Jolly Rancher. Ooh, yeah, oh, that's it's a good amazing. Smell. <laughs> it is. It's it shocked me. Uh, we so uh, the Monterey Bay Aquarium actually typically puts some on display during the summertime. Mm-hmm. And one time when the volunteers were coming in, uh, uh, somebody had actually a little bit of water from the exhibit after they had just put them in. And of course, when they were first put in, you know, some of the animals get a little stressed out and we'll yeah. put out that smell and they had scooped up the water and it smelled weird because you could smell that it was seawater, but you could also smell the can like the watermelon candy smell in the water. And it was really <laughs> strange to smell like that is, yeah, that is it blows my unexpected. Mind. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. So you know, that, that's their defense for the Dorids and some of the Tritons is, you know, being toxic and or using olfactory to deter predators. And in the case of the Aeolids, um, what they can do, they have, they have two options. They can either, if they have nidocytes that they can use, because of course, sometimes they don't have it. They, sometimes they'll eat an animal and they don't get any immature stingers or the stingers that they have haven't matured yet. Um, they can, if they have any available, uh, point their nido, their serrata and their nido sacs at the offending predator and squirt mm-hmm. the stingers out and hope that it gets stung and that that deters the predator. 
if that doesn't work or they don't have any nido sacks with uh, stingers in it that they can use, that's when they drop the serrata and use that uh, autotomy to uh, distract them and escape. So they'll, they'll uh, spray off sometimes one, maybe a couple of serrata. Hmm. The sticky secretion will come out. The serrata will wiggle in the water and the slug will try to get away and uh, let the predator be distracted by the serrata. So those are their main forms of defense against predators, of course, aside from the coloration. How quickly do they move? They don't look like they would move super fast. In general, they're not going to, no. They can be pretty (laughs) slow, but I mean, that really depends because there are nudibranchs that can swim. Mm. Uh, There is a nudibranch that actually mimics a fish. Uh, there is the Spanish dancer, which usually is flat on the ground, but it can contort its body to be able to swim. And and by being able to swim, even though by itself it's not very fast, if there mm-hmm. is a current, it can pick up on a current and be moved very quickly. Um, but in general, it depends on the nudibranch. Uh, while small ones have more maneuverability, they're not necessarily as fast as big ones. Um, so we do see that with some of the larger size nudibranchs some of those are the ones that are more cannibalistic because one all those tiny nudibranchs fit very comfortably in their mouth and two they're a little bit faster and they can outpace the smaller nudibranchs you know what is becoming abundantly clear to me here is um when i'm teaching biology this upcoming year i need when we get to evolution and natural selection i need to spend a hefty amount of time on nudibranchs because they (laughs) are not only great examples in all of their adaptations but they're great examples of how evolution works in that it's not like they are making a conscious decision of mimicking or having a warning coloration or saying oh i'm going to move like this fish as you said they can't really see aside from light differentiation so it's just a good example of how it's not the organism itself that's that's going oh you know what that that fish if i mimic that fish you know maybe i can sneak past things a little bit better or maybe if i have this coloration it's nothing like that it's just a really good example of how what is working in an environment will work for other creatures if if genetic variation and mutation and reproduction and all of that can filter things out you know through through what is going to work and it's just i don't know i'm, I'm kind of fascinated by how good of an example nudibranchs are <laughs> oh i you, you don't have to <laughs> you don't have to tell me like i i agree like when i first started reading about them like at first it was it, you know it was almost kind of gimmicky in a way, like the way that a lot of, when people talk about nudibranchs very briefly, they really do hone in on the crazy adaptations and don't really focus on much else. So often the read about them is very gimmicky, but as you really start to explore and realize the breadth of adaptations that they've adapted, because I haven't even mentioned them all because there are yeah. still, um, there are those that aren't very colorful and in some cases they can be either clear they can also be camouflaged in the sense of some of them actually mimic their prey. So there is a nudibranch that eats bryozoans, which are a shelled animal that looks very similar to bivalves, but they're not related to mollusks at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and this nudibranch looks exactly like a colony of bryozoans. And so when it's oh, eating wow. bryozoans, sometimes you don't realize that you're sitting there looking at it and you're like, oh, hey, look, bryozoans. And you don't realize that you're also staring at a sea slug that is currently eating those bryozoans. Oh, that is amazing. <laughs> it is. And then you get um, some, because aeolid nudibranchs will prey on cnidarians, 
there are a lot of cnidarians that have that symbiotic algae, the zooxanthellae. And some nudibranchs, in addition to being able to, and sometimes it's a trade-off, sometimes they can store the nidocytes and still have the algae. Some of them mm -hmm. just take the algae and not really the nidocytes. Again, there's that variation between species where some adaptations aren't across the board. But some aeolids can actually store the zooxanthellae in their body for a period of time and essentially farm it. Mm. So they will eat it from typically soft corals and hydroids, and then they will store them in these, uh, in the lining of their serrata essentially, because yeah. you of course want them to be able to photosynthesize. And since the serrata are propped up, um, it allows that to catch more sunlight, almost like little solar panels. And you'll know some of the species that are specially adapted to collect the zooxanthellae, because instead of having like, when you look at some aeolids, they almost have like the anime hair. There's like all those thick strands <laughs> all over the place. But yeah. with some of the species that specialize in it, they might only have maybe eight or 12 serrata and their serrata are bigger, sometimes even flattened. And it's just full of this algae and their, their serrata are specifically adapted to help them farm uh, like glucose, like sugars mm. from the algae while it's alive. Now the algae isn't, truly symbiotic the way it is in corals in a lot of cases if the nudibranchs are denied food uh, the algae will die off and leave their system it doesn't breed and continually live in them the way it does coral so they do have to kind of continually eat um, and they're still getting nutrition from the cnidarians they're eating the corals and hydroids but they are now also supplementing some of their diet so they can survive longer between meals because the algae might supply 5, 10, up to like, I think 20 or 25% of some nudibranchs diets. Mm -hmm. um, so it's this, you know, it, it's incredible that they've been able to accumulate all these different adaptations in what's a fairly small group of invertebrates. Like sometimes when we talk about groups of invertebrates, there's like, you know, like beetles, there's tens of thousands of species yeah. in that group. These guys, yes, we only know of 3000 of them and we are still finding more, but I don't think that they're going to reach the breadth that some invertebrate species have in diversity. Yeah. And yet among this tiny group, they have diversified their adaptations so incredibly well. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> You know, speaking of speaking of, you know, diversifying adaptations and evolution and natural selection, you know, a, a key component in that is genetics and not just genetics, but passing on of genetics, um, a.k.a. reproduction. I mean, how, how does that look in nudibranchs? <laughs> Maybe that's a weird way to phrase it. How do no, they no. reproduce? <laughs> it, it, it's a fascinating topic because. So when we when we talk about animal adaptations and we look at symmetry of animals, we actually distinguish asymmetric to bilateral sy symmetry. Mm -hmm. And among most animals, invertebrates and vertebrates alike, we see a lot of bilateral symmetry in a lot of the animals that we know about. And typically this would be true among many animals, but in mollusks it gets kind of weird. And these guys have their reproductive most species as far as i know if not all of them have their reproductive organs on their right side mm. they are all hermaphrodites so they have male and female organs they mm. cannot self-fertilize but when two nudibranchs of the appropriate species meet they can both impregnate each other at the same time oh weird yeah so <laughs> there, there's 
some people argue that there's courtship. I'm not sure that there's necessarily courtship so much as inspection to make sure that this isn't somebody about to eat you or the wrong species. (laughs) Because, I mean, it seems to involve a lot of kind of like feeling each other up with the rhinophores, especially, and sometimes with other parts of the body. And I think it's just like testing it like, are you the right one? Because they can't see each other. (laughs) Yeah. Before we take this any further, let's make sure you're not going to eat me. Uh (laughs) Yeah. So that's just my thought on it. Um, But Basically, uh, with because they're hermaphrodites, basically you don't have to worry about whether or not somebody is female or male. Anybody can mate within the same species, and it's kind of interesting. So there's there's been some recent research that has gone viral, and people have lost their minds over it. It's kind of silly because it's a little misleading. Mm-hmm. But um, a lot of people, when they talk about nudibranch reproduction, they talk about the detachable or dispo- disposable penis, mm-hmm. and it's not entirely true. Yes, they do have detachable parts of their bodies, um, but they can regenerate them. So actually, when I, I should have mentioned, when they drop serrata, they can grow back their serrata, some as quickly as within like a day or two. Um, same with other, some, part, some other parts of their body. So what happens is, is when they mate, have you ever heard of <laughs> sperm competition? Yes. Okay, cool. I don't have to cover that then. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, in some of the species that have been researched for the reproduction, they tend to have barb-tipped penises. Mm-hmm. So that is, of course, designed to stick it in there and detaching it can help try to make sure that nobody else inseminates it. Mm-hmm. Um, another part of it is, too, is that being barbed, it's hard to get back. Ah. <laughs> so they're like, you know what, let's just drop it. But it's not <laughs> the entire penis. It's been found that most of their penis is actually coiled up inside of their body. This is basically just the tip. and in some cases and and the research seems a little mixed uh sometimes uh in some cases i've read that either they sometimes have multiple tips that they can potentially use so if they lose one they have a backup okay and then what i've mostly seen a lot of research is simply that they can regenerate it pretty quickly uh generally within a 24 hour or 48 hour time period they can regenerate and be ready to breed again and this is important because most nudibranchs have pretty short lifespans and considering how big the ocean is and how little they are, you need to be able to meet as often as you can, as quickly as you can, if you're only going to live a few weeks to a year. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. So that's where that, that very easy access um, breeding comes from is you need to be able to find somebody know that they're an appropriate mate because you know if you keep running into dudes or you keep running into chicks you know it's going to be a problem when you're trying to breed (laughs) um so everybody being hermaphrodites and having these specialized adaptations are ways to help guarantee you know passing on those genetics and so once they've been able to uh, breed with each other and get each other impregnated they mm-hmm. will lay eggs and depending on the species it can range to a few eggs and by a few I mean like three to five to egg ribbons that have a few million eggs oh wow wow yep. that's a substantial amount <laughs> yep well again that short lifespan you got to make a lot of you to survive so what is their what is their life cycle like then I mean from I guess from the egg oh my goodness it's it's intense. Let's just, let's just start there. It's intense. They go through some really intense stuff. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to backtrack to the egg and talk about some of their evolutionary development, um, like I said, the snail came first. And Mm -hmm. when snails are forming, snails don't start out with their bodies contorted. They actually go through a process called torsion where their body is twisted up 
so that their posterior or the back end of their body sits above their head and is facing forward. And that, of course, will then be uh, enveloped by the shell that forms over it. Okay. And within the shell, it's going to create this protective casing around, you know, really imp important things like their digestive tract, their liver and kidneys, parts of their uh, respiratory system, gills mm -hmm. and things like that. Like those things all get protected by the shell. Now, depending on the type of nudibranch, there's two ways that they can develop. They can go through the torsion, form their shell, and hatch like that. Mm -hmm. And when they hatch like that, they're typically planktonic, and they're known, what's known as a veliger. So the veliger is a larval stage for snails and certain species of slugs. And during that stage, they're floating like little plankton in the ocean. They have their shell, but in the case of nudibranchs, they will eventually drop that shell and uh, detortion their bodies, detort back into uh, what their body should be. Okay. And then they will grow in length from there. Uh, but other species, they basically skip that Bellager stage. And once their body goes through torsion and they develop the shell in the egg, mm -hmm. they will go through detortion while still in the egg. They'll drop the shell, detort their body, and they basically hatch out as miniature adults that just need to grow. Oh. Huh. Okay. And what's really interesting is not all slugs go through this. Like this is something specific to certain types of oh, really? epistobranchs. Yeah. So um, when we look at sea hares, which are a type of sea slug, sea hares basically shrunk away their shell, much the way like octopuses did. So mm -hmm. they don't drop their shell. Uh, their shell actually shrinks through their development and just kind of either is something that's under their skin and virtually non-existent or just gone. Mm. And even species like, if you've never seen a bubble shell, a uh, bubble snail, bubble snails are adorable. They look like little kids wearing their backpacks for the first day of school. They just have <laughs> like a mostly slug-like body, which is this itty bitty shell planted in the middle of their body. And they look like slugs that just weren't ready to give up that really cute shell oh. they got. Oh my God, I just looked up a picture. They're adorable. <laughs> Aren't they? They're <laughs> super cute. Oh my gosh, they're so cute. And this one's captioned, I make noodle eggs. So I guess that's the thing. That's but perfect. oh my gosh, they're adorable. But I mean, the, the advantage with dropping the shell though is, I mean, that while the shell's great protection, you lose maneuverability and it's a big weight to carry around. Yeah. You know, with sea hares, one incredible thing about sea hares is they actually have flaps on their back and they can flap them like wings and swim like that. So, you know, in certain slugs dropping the shells, it really allowed them to diversify. I mean, there is a great you know, diversity among snails, but I think that the coolest thing that gastropods ever did was lose the shell because with the loss of the shell came some of the most incredible adaptations and it really created these very like fantasy looking animals that can do things that people don't expect. Yeah. And if they hadn't lost their shells, we wouldn't have these really incredible animals to admire. What would you... Um... I mean, I guess, I mean, is there, are, are there any issues facing them in terms of conservation? So on, on like individual species levels, as far as I know, there aren't a lot of species that are facing any endangerment or critically endangered or anything like that. Um, but there are a lot of threats that face them because of course, as the ocean as a whole faces a lot of threats, everything within it faces threats. Um, there are two major threats that I know of. There is, mm -hmm. of course, uh, habitat, habitat degradation and loss, which 
you know, for a lot of these species that rely on coral reefs and eating corals and other things like that. Mm -hmm. As we see the issues uh, like warming and acidifying oceans that cause coral bleaching events um, that can really threaten the habitat and the food source of certain species. Yeah. And then for ones in like kelp forests, kelp forests are also being impacted by this as the ocean changes composition, we're seeing more algae blooms. And with algae blooms, they block out sunlight, the kelp doesn't grow as successfully, mm -hmm. and kelp forests are degraded by these processes of climate change that are uh, causing all these things to happen. And this negatively impacts basically everything that relies on a kelp forest, including certain species of nudibranchs. Um, so that's one way that they're threatened. Another way that they've been threatened has actually been pretty fascinating, and that has been introduction of other nudibranch species. Uh, mm. This was something I learned about on the West Coast is, again, as the oceans are changing and warming, uh, species are migrating. And the Hilton's nudibranch, which is an aeolid on our West Coast in the U.S., is moving north, and that is a nudibranch-eating nudibranch. It's a cannibal. And the issue that they're seeing is, is as it moves north, uh, they're seeing a decrease in nudibranch biodiversity mm -hmm. and an increase in the presence of the Hiltons. And so the assumption is, is that the Hiltons are eating a lot of the native nudibranchs. Oh. And even worse, some are being introduced. So when we had the massive earthquake slash tsunami slash nuclear meltdown in Japan, mm -hmm. uh, some of the flotsam and jetsam that... Uh, got exchanged between continents due to that event actually brought foreign nudibranchs to the west coast oh really from japan yep there are species wow. from japan that we had never seen before that are suddenly in west coast waters now whether or not there are enough of them to successfully breed and create an invasive colony on our west coast is yet to be seen we certainly hope not mm -hmm. but you know uh that again is an issue that could threaten certain animals is the migration of species because they can you know bring with it the migration of cannibalistic nudibranchs which can decrease uh local nudibranch biodiversity if you were to if you were to um you know, have somebody, some random person interact, you know, that you're interacting with and, and you wanted them to care. If you had like 30 seconds to try and convince them that nudibranchs were cool, that they oh should care gosh. about them, you know, what would be your, what would be the thing that you would hone in on? Oh, the pressure. <laughs> oh, there's just, it's, it's one of those things where that's so difficult because there's so much because you know, it's not the same as saying, you know, how would you protect an okapi? That's just one species. Like yeah. I can, I can unfortunately talk somebody's head off about no copy. <laughs> um, but I guess, for, I guess for nudibranchs, nudibranchs for me represent the potential of nature that we're losing. One of the things we don't think of when we think of conserving species, because we think of conserving them right now for their jobs now, but nobody's ever thinking about the fact that evolution never stops and animals are constantly changing. And when we lose genetic diversity and when we lose species or populations, we've now lost the evolutionary future of that animal and what it could have done for the environment. So, you know, we talk about our future when we talk about protecting the environment. But I don't think some people think about losing the beauty of 
basically that that diversity, all these different adaptations, because we don't know which adaptations are going to succeed the most in the future. And if we lose any of those adaptations or those genetic mutations that are being introduced now, mm -hmm. we might actually be preventing them from being able to evolve and adapt into the future. And even if they're not going extinct right now, we might accidentally cause their extinction by denying them the ability to evolve and adapt properly. So I understand that they may not be in dire straits right now, but I do think it's important to protect them because they are such an incredible flagship for the potential nature has to create these amazing mm. animals that can adapt into all these different environments, different diets, different defenses. And we don't want to lose that because this is how we guarantee the success of species in the future, whether they're slugs, birds, reptiles, whatever. Mm -hmm. we, we, we can't have a healthy, safe, sustainable future if we've let animals' genetic diversity degradate to the point that they're unprepared to evolve in the future, basically. It's kind of like cheetahs. Mm -hmm. we, we've we destroyed cheetah genetics to the point that we can keep breeding them all we want, but there is a chance that we have essentially guaranteed their extinction with our actions. And we need to, need to ensure that we don't do that to any other species, that we don't allow them to reach that point of no return. And I, I suppose, I mean, that's, that's incredibly well said. Um, I suppose sometimes the difficulty in conservation is uh, people don't really want to listen unless it's affecting their wallet somehow, <laughs> either, <laughs> either negatively or positively. And oh. um, I suppose, you know, another way of, you know, something else to add would just be, you know, look at the bio biomimicry engineering potential, um, you know, the different, the different ways that they might actually, their very existence and adaptability and survivability and the ways that they have found themselves in nature uh, might very well influence, you know, how we also navigate our own world. Absolutely. And I, I agree with that. And I think that's, um, that's kind of one of the problems we run into as conservationists sometimes is yeah. it, it's easy for us to want to protect the environment because we believe in protecting the environment for the sake of the environment. Mm -hmm. But we do have to acknowledge that if we want everybody on board, board with environmentalism, we have to acknowledge the people who really are looking at the economic uh, impact of environmentalism and whether or not it's worth it to protect uh, certain species or the environment in general. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I bring it up in my podcast too. Like I, I hit economic value for species, not because I think that species need economic value to be protected, but because I know that there are some people that only look at species for their economic value and whether or not they're worth investing in. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it is a valid point. And I know that some conservationists don't want to focus on it because they don't believe that we should have to apply that kind of value. But at the end of the day, there's, you know, 7 billion plus people in this world <laughs> that all think differently and have different values. And if we're not trying to communicate with everyone on their terms about environmental protection and wildlife conservation, um, we're going to continue to struggle to get people on board with us. Yeah. Yeah. If there's anything that I've learned in the, in the years that I've been doing this kind of thing, it's that it is a lot easier 
I mean, even just in teaching in general, it is a lot easier to get something across to somebody through their perspective and their lens and their values than it is to convince them to have the same values that you do. Exactly. And that's why um, when I was taught how to convey environmental messages, we use NOKI, which is the National Network for Ocean and Climate Change Interpretation. And that is basically how they teach us is, you know, you, you ask open-ended questions and you kind of probe a little bit to try to get a feel for a person and where their values lie. And once you have a sense of where, what their values are, you can then begin to craft your messaging around their values to help mm-hmm. bring their perspective on the same level of, of yours as to why these things are important. So I completely agree with you on that. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this today. I really appreciate the time. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening today. Thank you for letting me nerd Um, out about my favorite sea slugs. I I don't know that I can really say or add anything uh, to to what to what uh, you you probably noticed. We didn't really do any cuts or asides. um, And that's because uh, Kristen said everything that was needed to be said and did so so wonderfully. Um, she really is an amazing science communicator, an amazing naturalist, and um, I don't know why she says nagging because I don't I don't feel like it comes across as nagging, but maybe that's maybe that's just me as a naturalist myself. I'm just like yeah, preaching to the choir. Anyway, thank you for listening. I hope that you did what I asked and looked at some amazing nudies. Okay, nudibranch pictures. Don't look up nude. Just okay. I really hope that you didn't look up nudies and that you looked up nudibranchs because different results. But um, yes, look at those pictures. They're they're amazing to look at. We'll put some links in our uh, episode notes as well as links to Kristen's social media and the Nagging Naturalist website where I'm telling you, give her show a listen. You're going to become a fan instantly. Now for me, um, <laughs> back to uh, back to planning back to keeping it together. And, uh, I, I hope you all are well. Um, if, if, if you have any questions, if you want to chat about science or animals or life or anything, you can always reach out to us on social media. Um, we are quite friendly. I feel like And uh, just just stay tuned. Stay tuned with our social media, especially Twitter. We do a lot on Twitter. And um, we will be posting updates. And as soon as we have new content coming, we will we will let you know. Uh, we're really excited to, to be back. I'm saying like future tensey slash past tensey, but because, you know, technically I haven't gone anywhere yet. But um, but yeah, everyone take care. Take care of yourselves. Okay. Bye.